We've been studying this narrative of Abraham beginning since the end of Genesis chapter 11, but we've been studying it in kind of a couple different levels, what I'll call, I'll call for a moment the macro level and then the micro level. You know, in every story in the Bible, uh, every character matters in his or her own right, uh, the, the story of that particular person. And that's kind of the micro level of that person's life. But because the Bible is one book and all those stories make up one larger, grand story, we also need to place Abraham within the macro level of what God is doing in the world. And so the narrative of Abraham itself kind of points us and and shows us the things within the macro level that we need to be uh, mindful of. First, we, we really need constantly to be reminded that Evil, all evil, all injustice, all hatred, all selfishness, all these expressions of evil in the world are, they're an invasion on a a foreign power on God's good earth. You see, God made the world good. And the story of the Bible is how he is dealing with this invasion of this foreign power. The reason we can really suggest that anything in this life is good, and we need to be mindful of this, is only because we believe that God created it good. If you, if you don't believe that, then you really can't ascribe any good to anything in the world. Because if you really look at the world, you see that we ourselves, no matter how good we are and every other person in the world, it has some bit of evil in them. Every corner of the world has darkness even though some more than others. On the macro level of the Genesis narrative, we're really still learning how God is going to stop this downward cycle of evil in the world. The story of Abraham uh, points us to a couple of people. In, In chapter 12, when God gives these promises to Abraham of fruitfulness, of prosperity, of protection, international blessing, these remind us of of two men in biblical history, Adam and Noah. There are only two men in the narrative thus far that God has interacted with in the way that he's interacting with Abraham. And those are Adam and Noah. You see, Adam and Noah were given these blessings. And they were told, go, spread out across the earth. Be a blessing. Steward the earth. They were to multiply on the earth God's image bearers who would exercise his righteous rule in the world. But if you read the story, you can feel that the very weight of the world was on these men and their families. But in different ways, both Adam's family and Noah's failed. Both of these men were given these roles, but... The multiplication of their family only meant the multiplication of evil. You see this so clearly in Adam's family when his own sons, when Cain wars against Abel and kills him. Now with Abraham, of all the families of the earth, God has entered into a relationship with a childless old man. The weight of the narrative and the weight of humanity appears to be on this childless old man. And despite God's promises, we're really still unsure by chapter 15 of all, what God is going to do with this man. After all, he, he's willing to put out his own wife to an evil king. And if he's willing to do that with his wife, what would he do to any normal Joe? We're really not sure. We're still wondering, as Aubrey has shared, how God is going to make things right in the world when part of his solution is the part of the problem. 
That is the lingering question when we get to chapter 15. How is God going to make things right when the the solution, the very solution that he's shown thus far is a lot of the problem? It's a question that I think chapter 15 gives a partial answer. When we arrive at chapter 15, perhaps you've noticed if you've been here uh, throughout the study, following God's promises to Abraham in chapter 12, the focus of chapters 12 through 14 has primarily been on land. You see, Abraham came to Canaan, but then was driven out of Canaan because of famine and into Egypt. But then he was driven out of Egypt with abundant blessing, prosperity, and back into Canaan. The prosperity was so great that he and Lot had to split up. Lot had to go to one side. Abraham had to go to another. And after that, God actually tells Abraham to basically go, say, go survey the land. Go check out how great this land is that I'm going to give you. That's in chapter 13. And even though there is a, a little bit of in, indication that God still is going to give him children, the, the blessing of children is only a byproduct of land. Land dominates chapters 12 through 14. I'm sharing this with you because by chapter 16, there's an escalation. The issue of barrenness comes to the forefront of the narrative. I'm not going to give away the surprise. But I think you know it's pretty interesting the things that his wife asked him to do. And it causes a lot of problems. But chapters 16 through 22 are all about barrenness. The promise of a child. So in between chapters 12 through 14, chapters 16 through 22, land on this side, childlessness on this side, is chapter 15. And it bridges the two. It shows us how God is going to bring together the promise both of land and childlessness. As we look at chapter 15, we're going to take it in the structure of the narrative. There are two separate visions. You see there's verses 1 through 6 in one vision. The first is a night vision. And the second is in the evening. And the narrative clearly divides in this way by introductory phrases in verses 1 and verse 7. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open throughout. We'll be referencing. I'll be coming back the whole, throughout the whole time. But if you look at verse 1 of, of chapter 15, the Lord shows up to Abraham. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And he says, fear not, I am if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that this, these two words are some of the most important words in all the Bible. I am. It's the declaration of the sovereign authority power of God. Now look at verse 7. God shows up again. He said to him, to Abraham, I am. This is how the narrative divides. Separate promises, separate visions. And this is how we'll look at the story. So we'll look at verses 1 through 6 first. Verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. When chapter 15 begins with, after these things, it's an indication that we need to be mindful of the things that happen in chapter 14. If you remember from last Sunday, or just mind, you know the story, Abraham, his uh, nephew Lot, was taken hostage by an army, the armies of Mesopotamia. Armies of the nations. Abraham gathered a group of men and went and conquered these nations to to retrieve his nephew Lot. So it's right after a war. 
Now, war is never pretty. We know this. And so it makes sense that God would come to Abraham and he would show up and say, fear not, Abraham, Abram. I am your shield. In other words, I am your defender. I am the one who takes care of you. It confirms what Melchizedek said in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 14 when he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now when we read this, we should think of Adam. Abram is a new Adam. You see, Adam was to be a blessing to all the nations. He was to subdue the earth. At this point, though, because of sin, Abram, no man can subdue the earth on his own. Abram is subduing the earth by conquering the enemies of Yahweh, but he's doing this only through Yahweh delivering the enemies into his hand. If you're familiar with the New Testament, if, if you go straight there, you can, this thing should just ring in your mind. We are ambassadors of God as if he were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. You see, this is the way it works in the Christian faith. We can't conquer the earth on our own. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to be servants of God who is extending his peace throughout the earth. And this is what Abram does. So God is his defender. He says, I'm your shield. But then he says, your reward shall be very great. Now, your reward. The easiest reference to this is to the land. This is what God has promised Abram. But there are a couple other things in chapter 14 that we need to see. First, Abram in chapter 14, well, 13 and 14, he he gave to Lot his choice of land. He was generous, as we said last week, and allowed Lot to take whatever land he would choose. Then in chapter 14, after he conquered these armies, the king of Sodom said, you take the spoil. And, and Abram said, no. If you look at chapter 14, uh, verses 22 through 23, this is very significant. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. See, what the narrator wants us to be mindful of is that Abram has entrusted himself to God in terms of any type of material prosperity. He won't be made rich by the king of Sodom, a man who would, might feel like that he owns Abram after that. Instead, Abram entrusts himself to God to bring him blessing. And then we see in chapter 15 that God promises him, your reward shall be very great. Now, there is some quick application that I want to make here. I think it's intentionally vague. You see, in earlier, Abraham accepted, well, accepted or was forced to accept much of what Pharaoh gave him when he kicked him out of Egypt. Abraham might not have had the choice whether to take it or not. Pharaoh was pretty upset at the time. But at this point, he doesn't accept anything that the king of Sodom will give him. I, like I said, I think, the, I think it's intentionally a bit vague. But I think it's clear enough. The question is, when are we relying on men when we should be relying on God? When are we entrusting ourselves to men to give us what we need when we should be relying on God? Some way in which we are giving ourselves over to the power of men or we sh and when we should be submitting ourselves to God. You know, in the New Testament, it's clear that this reward is an eternal reward. And so on another level, we don't put 
our deepest levels of trust and hope in man or in anything on this earth, but we entrust ourselves to God who is the reward. He gives the reward of life in his kingdom. So that, I, th- I think that is something the narrator is trying to bring out for us. Abram is not a man who entrusts himself to other men, but he's learned to trust in God in terms of material wealth. But there's a real problem. There's a problem in the narrative. You see, God's going to promise him very great reward. That reward is likely the land. But what's the point in an old man having a lot of land if he has no children to give it to and to pass it on to? And that's what brings us to Abraham's cry in verses 2 and 3. We need to see this. Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You know, it was all the way back in chapter 11 when the narrative introduced us to Abram and his family, and it said regarding Sarah that she was barren. She had no child. Despite great wealth already, the promise of more to come, even though it hasn't been mentioned much even since that point, it's like the topic at the family reunions that we don't talk about, even though it's always there. It's the elephant that's always in the room. So that when it does come up, it's not something that we're shy about. It comes out in force. This is a plea. Abraham is saying, God, what are you going to do? I have no child. What is the point in land when I have no one to pass it on to? With this Eliezer of Damascus, Abraham and Sarah have probably taken on this ancient practice of couples without children. They've adopted a slave to be their heir. They've just simply given up the fact that that they won't have children. This slave will take care of them in their old age. And he will inherit everything that that they have left over. But God responds with this equal force in verses 4 through 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, show shall your offspring be. It's no one who will be his heir, but one from his own body, is what the Hebrew verb says, from his own body. There's a tension in the story that the narrator wants us to see. In verse 3, Abram asked for a son, an heir. It's the word for seed. But it's very interesting because the word for seed is almost always in the singular. Because seed can refer to a son, or it can refer in a singular sense, in a collective plural sense, to sons. This is all my Children, seed. So seed is always in the singular. But it's in, there's an intentional tension. You see, first Abraham says, I want an heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. So God promises him one from his own body, one singular heir. But then God takes him outside, shows him the stars and says, so shall your seed singular be. You see, Abraham's seed will be one, but then at the same time, somehow, it will be many. Now, this, hap- this is going to come up again in the Abraham narrative, and so I don't want to ruin any fun for Aubrey, but I do want to uh, show you that this is extremely significant. You see, this has already come up in Genesis 3. Do you remember when the, uh, the serpent receives his curse? 
God says to the serpent, her seed shall crush your head. It's singular, the same word. Her seed shall crush your head. In some way, God's plan for the world for conquering evil comes through the singular seed of the woman. But then as we carry on throughout the Old Testament, Israel longs for a seed, a king who will rule them in justice, a king like David. After David dies, the nation goes downhill fast. Israel longs for a Messiah who will redeem them from the oppression of the nations. See, they long for one who will arise from among them, from within the multiple seed of Abraham. One who will be just and faithful, a true Israelite, a true child of Abraham. In Jesus Christ... We do receive a true son of Abraham, a true son of God, a true seed. But for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, we all become seed of Abraham. The narrative is intentionally placed within this this tension. We are longing for one who will arise among us and lead us and redeem us and make all things right in the world. And then we all will be children of Abraham under that one. And Jesus Christ is that one. And we, through faith in Jesus Christ, become seed of Abraham. I'll let Aubrey do more with that in the future. I'm sure that he will. God has brought Abraham outside. He shows him the heavens, says, count them if you're able to number them. This is what your seed will be. And it says in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. There's probably no verse in the Old Testament that's made more impact in the New Testament than this one. But before we connect those dots, we need to see how it functions in the narrative. This verse, despite all its simplicity, Abraham believed God. It should really stun us. It should stun us if we're following along closely. You see, lying side by side in these couplets of verses 2 through 3 when Abraham speaks and verses 4 through 5 when God speaks is this stark contrast between the burden of barrenness and a promise of unimaginable abundance. You know, if if age was a concern for Abraham, he's not getting any younger. As one writer pokes at him. Surely it's not because he now feels a new generative power in his loins. What led to Abraham suddenly believing God? Is Sarah in the background saying, Abram, I think I'm starting to feel nauseated. The narrative forces us to ask the question, what changed? What happened to Abraham? How is he all of a sudden believing God? We have to go back. We have to go back in verse 5, what God does for Abraham. He brings him outside. He tells him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. You see, creation became a message of affirmation of God's promise. But the narrator doesn't want us to focus on creation so much as the God who is the creator. If Abram could look to the sky, see the stars over this desert where he could see all the stars, he would marvel. You know, it could really be a reflection on this event that led to Psalms like Psalm 8 and 19, which say, When I look up to the heavens which your fingers made and see the moon and the stars which you set in place, 
of what importance is the human race that you should notice them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. Creation became a message of God's grace to Abraham. It was a sacrament, a sacrament and it confirmed his promise. You know, God often makes his people wait on things. And that's so much of what the story of Abraham is about. It's about waiting. But in some way, sustaining faith, even though you're having to wait. In the face of nothing to prove that the promise is coming. The question is, how do we have faith in the meantime? And in this case, God delivers his assurance through the sign of creation. We really shouldn't miss this drastic shift in Abraham's faith. Lack of faith to full faith. We'll bring this together more at the end. But it should encourage us that when we can't literally see God's promises, God God often used such messengers of assurance, like creation, like people. God speaks to us in these ways to sustain us. And these are very real messengers of God's grace, of his assurance. So verse 6, the beginning of it should stun us. Abraham has drastically changed. And he believed God in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. When it says he believed the Lord, it's actually the word we get for amen. Abraham trusted God. He agreed with God that his promise was true. He said amen to God. And then it says God counted it to him as righteousness. Some of your Bibles might say, reckoned it to him as righteousness. When we were growing up using the word reckon, we didn't know we were speaking Hebrew. And I'm sure the folks in Elton don't know you're speaking Hebrew when you use reckon. For those of you who don't understand the word reckon, go speak to someone from Elton after this and they can help you understand that word. God credited it to him. He counted it to him. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. Righteousness in the Old Testament, it's a relational attribute. It means to do what is just, what is fitting. And in relationship to God, the only thing fitting is faith. The only thing fitting in response to God's promises is faith. To doubt God is not fitting to who God is because God is all-powerful and sovereign. The only appropriate response to God is trust and faith. There's also a a judicial association here that's brought out more in the New Testament. That is that judges declare people to be guilty or righteous in the right. But judges normally do this based on an action, a righteous action. Someone defends themselves, so God declare, or someone, the judge will declare them righteous in the right. But in this case, it's odd. This is contrary to that. Because in this case, it's faith to which God responds and credits that with righteousness. It's not a particular action. And it makes this unique. You see, sitting in God's courtroom is not like any other courtroom. You don't have to convince the judge that you haven't done what you're accused of. You don't have to defend yourself before this judge. You don't have to convince him of many honorable things that you have done. But what you have to do is agree with the judge that his way is right 
and that he is true to all his promises. This is the way to God's kingdom. If, if you're not a Christian in this room, or maybe you are, you say you believe in God, but you've grown up in a context in which God was presented as a very harsh God who would judge you if you didn't act just right, please hear this. When you sit in God's courtroom, the only response you're to give is to say, yes, you're right. I believe and I trust in, in you. That's what God's courtroom is like. And that's where he will declare you in the right, righteous. But there's also a nuance to Abraham's faith that American Christians can really miss. This is that his trust was continual. See, it says Abraham trusted God. And the narrator wants us to know that throughout Abraham's life, even though there are some pitfalls, as we'll see next week, Abraham generally trusted God. It became the way of his life. And this is what James brings out in the New Testament. It was Abraham's faith that led to his action, but it was his action that confirmed his faith. There's no reason to put James against Paul or biblical writers to pit them against one another. Faith and works have always been interactive in the biblical narrative. If you have faith, you walk in that faith and your actions confirm the faith. And faith without works, as James says, Paul and Jesus would agree, is dead. It's a useless faith. Nevertheless, Abraham trusted in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we're at verse 7 and you're probably getting nervous about how long this is going to take. He said to him, this is the second narrative, the second section. God comes to Abraham again and says, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. As with verse 1, it begins with the declaration of God's sovereignty. I am. But more clearly than in verse 1, this is an introductory formula to a covenant. If you are a Jew reading the story or listening to the story of Abraham, you immediately recognize that there's something interesting and something big going on here. You see, in covenants, there are always two sides involved. There's a suzerain who is the Lord, who is the king or ruler, and there would be a vassal, a servant. And a covenant would begin with the suzerain first stating the authority on which he makes a covenant. A covenant being simply an agreement between the two sides. In this case, God simply says, I am the Lord. It's a declaration of his power. The next step of the covenant is to give a summary of the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. And so, with that structure in mind, the next step... God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is how God and Abraham's relationship began. God states his past faithfulness to Abraham. And it's on this basis that he's going to enter into a covenant with Abraham. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, Abraham says, God promises Abraham, I gave you this land to possess. And Abraham says in response, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, verse 8 doesn't have to be a question of doubt like the earlier verses from Abraham. You see, in a covenant, there is always included a formal ceremony where both parties agreed to the terms of the covenant And committed themselves to fulfilling their end. So Abraham isn't necessarily doubting God or his ability to give him the land. But he's asking him, as in general in a covenant, how are we going to confirm this? How are you going to show me that you will give me the land? 
If you attended Nate and Rachel's wedding last night, that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about here. Both parties, they had already agreed to be married, but it was a formal ceremony to fulfill the obligations of marriage. They committed themselves. And afterward, we celebrated with feasting. And feasting in that context is a covenant meal. It's much like, it hasn't changed much since these ancient covenants. There were often these covenant meals afterward. So in verse 9, God tells Abraham to arrange a covenant ceremony. That's what's happening. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. You know, it might be helpful to think about this ceremony a bit like the wedding. The first part, Abraham is to prepare all the sacrifices. It's kind of like the last minute preparations, maybe the day of the wedding when the feast is being prepared on that morning. The next part that we're going to see is kind of the wedding sermon. I mean, we like it, Aubrey, we love it. But that's not our favorite part of the wedding, is it? You see, our favorite part of the wedding is when the vows begin. It's when they commit themselves to one another. And then the last part, when it is sealed with a kiss at the end. This covenant between God and Abraham takes place in much the same way. Again, if you're reading this as an Israelite, there are a couple things you would recognize immediately. First, the animals God asked for are the types of animals required later in the Levitical system of sacrifice of sin offerings at the tabernacle and the temple. Wouldn't this be interesting if you're an Israelite several hundred years later, you've come out of Egypt, and Moses is telling the story of Abraham. You, as an Israelite, think God just gave you this Levitical system of the animals that are clean and the animals that are unclean. You think that was just given to you for the first time ever in the history of humanity. All of a sudden, you're listening to the story of Abraham, and you hear... That Abraham is to take the animals representative of the sacrificial system that you're using 400 years later. As an Israelite, you understand that the animals in a covenant represent you. That in a covenant, the animals will be split open. And then you, who are the vassal, will walk between those animals. You'll recite the obligations of the covenant. And you realize... That if you don't complete the obligations of the covenant, you will be split in half, just like those animals. If this sounds fun to you, then you can read on in Jeremiah about this taking place where God threatens the people with judgment because they've disobeyed him. And that that will happen to them. So as an ancient Israelite, you're stunned. All of a sudden, this isn't just about you, this covenant system, but this is about Abraham, your spiritual ancestor. All of a sudden, you're wrapped up in this story of Abraham. Through these animals, all of a sudden, the Israelites are brought into the story. Let's jump to verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Again, Abraham's like Adam. When did Adam fall into a deep sleep? When his rib was being taken out. It's almost to the point of death. A deep sleep fell on him and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When you see dreadful and great darkness in the Bible, sometimes God has a still small voice, like Aubrey said. Sometimes he shows up big. And so when you see dreadful, great darkness, that is God. That is God showing up. So this falls on Abram. God shows up. The Lord tells him. Gives, this is the wedding sermon. 
He tells him about his offspring that will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They'll be gone for 400 years. It's very interesting. But the major part of this that's consistent with the rest of chapter 15 is that the promise is prolonged. You see, there's more waiting. This is what we've seen already. Abraham is waiting for a child. Abraham is waiting for the land. And then he tells him 400 years more. They will wait. You see, faith has a lot to do with waiting. But then verse 17 and 18, we arrive at the vows, the major part of the covenant. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It's very odd, very mysterious, but here is what we know. Usually it should be the vassal, right? The servant who walks between these pieces of animals, bringing on themselves the obligations of the covenant. But in this case, it's not Abram who walks between the pieces. It's a smoking pot and a torch of fire. What we know about those images is this is how God represents himself to his people. Later, through the Exodus, he's fire to Moses. But then even after that, he is smoke or, and he's dark clouds around the tabernacle. This is how God shows up. What? This is strange, though. It's the vassal who is supposed to complete the obligations of the covenant. But in this case, it's God who brings on himself the obligations of the covenant. You see, if he doesn't complete the obligations of the covenant, he has to receive the curses of the covenant. But how would God receive curses of a covenant? It's very strange. It's very strange. You know, this chapter is about faith. It's about the faith of Abraham. It's about waiting But it's about while we wait, we walk in faith. And our works confirm our faith as we trust in God in the face of the impossible. That he will fulfill all his promises. But even more than that, this chapter is about God. How does God deal with the problem of evil in the world when the solution is part of the problem? We're back full circle. He enters into relationship with his people. That's what God does. The entire chapter is theologically oriented around how God leads and initiates. God gives to Abram the promises of great reward and innumerable children. God brings Abraham outside and helps him orient his faith correctly. And once Abraham does, God credits to him as righteousness. And finally, God, in this scene, enters into a covenant agreement with Abraham... But in doing so, instead of making us sign the dotted line or Abram sign the dotted line, God signs it himself and says, I will fulfill the covenant. He commits himself to ensuring that the relationship with his people is carried out and that evil is done away with. And to jump way ahead, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of his torn body was a covenant event in itself. Like those animals that Abraham was to take and split open, Jesus' death was a representative death for all of us. It was God's way of carrying out the covenant of establishing it forever. To those who trust in Jesus, he gives the promise of eternal life and the hope he's making all things new. But we wait, don't we? 
We're still waiting. God has fulfilled the covenant, but we're still waiting. How do we, like Abraham, through the message and the affirmation of the stars in the heavens, how do we know God will fulfill his promise? Abraham had the sign of the stars, and surely God still uses that. But is that all we have? Are we just supposed to look up to heaven and that be a reminder that God will be faithful? I don't think that's all. I think what this points to is another promise, another sign of God confirming his promise. The New Testament is unanimous that the Holy Spirit is the sign and the seal for all people who long for the promise. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see, God gives his spirit to those who believe as a guarantee of the promise because he knows that waiting is hard. God's Spirit works inside us, makes us into new people, His image bearers. People reflecting Him through the ability to love, the ability to show patience, to be joyful, to be hopeful. He gives us a Spirit so we might share in God together through friendship, through worship, and through the covenant meal we'll have in just a few moments. When you are able to reflect on your life in the face of all the impossibility in the world, when it seems like all is dark and that the end, the new earth will never come. At that point is when you reflect on your life and you say, I could never love without God's work in me. That's when you know God has made a deposit in your life. When you say, I could never sustain this marriage without God in me. That's when you know that God has made a deposit in your life. When you say, I can never be patient with my children. I could never care for a person like that unless God was working in me. You see, that's the deposit in your life and that is the guarantee that God will renew all things. So, how does God solve the problem that the solution is part of the problem? He covenants with us. And he obligates himself to fulfilling the covenant. This chapter is about faith. Faith in the face of the impossible. But it's also, and even more so, about God. Who always fulfills his covenants. Do you have faith? Do you trust in God? God has fulfilled his covenant through the son, Jesus Christ. And to all who will look on him, he will give you the deposit of his spirit. And we will wait and we will grow working in faith together. Let's pray.